podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Sally Thornton is founder and CEO of a company called Forche, which focuses on how people can do their best work. Forche does executive recruiting in a highly customized way. They help to arrange for project-based work, and they improve systems of work through cultural changes that affect how diversity and inclusion are managed. It's a remarkable, creative company. Sally launched WorkLab back in 2015, which is a design thinking community of action committed to making work better, based on her collaboration with Stanford's Redesigning and Redefining Work project. She lectures regularly at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, as well as UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. She also serves on the Advisory Council of Stanford's Clayman Institute for Gender Research. Sally and I talk about the future of work, which will be more fluid, less focused on a job, and more on both the work itself and on results. We talk about the importance of social support at work, for enabling people to thrive in all parts of their lives, and how to build it. And Sally offers some invaluable tips for how to harness technology so that it's not a distracting and intrusive force in our lives, but rather so that it helps to limit and focus our time on the people and projects that really matter. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, let me ask you to please rate it, and leave a review on iTunes so others are more likely to find and enjoy it too. Now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from a catalyst for change in the design of work and what the future of work means for all of us as we strive to bring our whole selves to work. It's Sally Thornton. Welcome, Sally. Thank you so much. It's great to have you here. So what is Forche? What do you do? And then I'm going to ask you how you got into it. Yeah. Um, What we do is basically find quality talent to put into wonderful projects or jobs because we embrace the future of work, which is not everything's done in a job. Sometimes it's done in a project. So whether you need an interim chief marketing officer or a chief marketing officer as a job, we we provide that from a recruiting perspective. But we call it sort of recruiting and consulting because if it's interim, it's really consulting. Um, what do you mean? Is, how, how is well, it more consulting yeah, than, than, than recruiting if it's an interim position? So recruiting is a traditional, like, you pay me as I fill this job, and then we're done. Mm -hmm. And consulting is, you know, every week I submit my hours for how much I've worked on this project, 
like a lawyer would. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's typically more of a consulting arrangement. I but see. it really is just allowing more fluidity mm-hmm. of how work gets done. And so part of it is just evolving our language from always thinking about jobs to really the meta, which is work. You know, whether you get paid on an hourly basis as a consultant or whether you get paid as a salaried employee that, you know, in a job, we try to sort of bring it back up to the meta, given that the, the future of work, which is happening right now, is um, a lot more fluid. So, so that's, for, yeah, for so, sure. So, so do you mainly bring people to positions or to projects on a project basis or on a quote-unquote permanent basis? What, what's, the, what's the percentage breakdown in, in your business? Well, I love that you even said quote-unquote permanent because we are sort of letting go of that <laughs> language, yeah. right, because no job is ever permanent. Um, I would say we started 100% interim. So it started 100% project-based. How do we keep these people engaged at their highest skill set? Now, seven years in, um, we are about 60-40, 60% interim, 40%. And what we say is direct oh. hire. So direct, direct hire means? What used to be permanent. I see. So you've moved more into that space. Well, it's yes, because we've grown. You know, it's, it's when you start any business, you know, 100% of a dollar <laughs> is the law of small numbers. Um, so... You know, it was interesting. Actually, our clients are the ones who made, not made us, but like asked us to do it. Because when we started on the interim side and we knew each other back in like 10 years ago when I was doing this, um, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was such a focus on cultural complement that we didn't realize we'd stumbled into this thing called diversity and inclusion. We just thought of it as hmm. how do we help people who are being overlooked, right? Because it's all about quality talent. We, no one feels like they have enough quality talent. So we were we thought the problem we were solving was just bringing this talent who wanted to work in a different way, you know, into the marketplace in a fluid way. Then what happened was it was actually a animation company that I can't name, very cool, who said, "Why do I have to go to a different recruiter to fill some of these jobs because you actually always give us talent that fits our culture and also hmm. talent that's diverse." And we didn't realize that was the secret sauce of ours until they said that and so we said, "Oh, we should keep doing that." <laughs> Wait, so so your clients drove you to do more direct hire, more long-term employment kinds of kinds of recruiting. But I I'd, I'd like to step back and ask more about find out more about how you were uh, successful in making the the cultural fit work because that's mm-hmm. of course one of the one of the core challenges in the uh, in the job matching slash recruiting business. How did you it do really that? Is, what was yeah, distinctive about your about the Forche or whatever you were calling yourself back then approach? Right. So it started as Flexperience and then it evolved to Forche. Um, you know, what we found the secret sauce to be was really about trust and transparency. So I'll give you a real example. Um, so one of the people who was applying to this cool animation company was pregnant. And when she was applying and we were helping, we were the recruiter, um, you know, the, the client was very, very picky. They have a very specific culture, um, and they also want you in the office all the time, and they have, hmm. um, you know, they have a lot of requirements, and, and recruiters hate a lot of requirements because it really narrows the sure. aperture of your pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, so already we were dealing with a very small pool of people who could work in the specific job they want, which at the time was head of compensation. And so when we found someone who actually met all the criteria 
that the client wanted first, mm-hmm. you know, on a paper. Then you move to the cultural complement, as you were saying. Then it was, you know, how does he or she make decisions? That's how we get, uncover a little bit about the culture of how, you know, influencing works, how decision-making works, um, how collaboration is viewed, because it can be viewed in very, you know, very different ways. And the best example I think of is Apple is a very closed culture, very secretive, and Google is a very open culture, mm-hmm. both highly successful, but very different in how they approach collaboration and sharing information, et cetera. Um, so back to this animation company. So they said, you know, well, you know, we'd like to give an offer. We found this, we, what we called the purple unicorn candidate. And then the candidate said no. And we were baffled. We were like, wait a minute, but we did this, we did everything right. You know, mm-hmm, we have all mm-hmm. the skills, we have the culture compliment. What, what happened? What didn't work for her? Well, she changed her mind. She didn't think she could accept the job being pregnant. She felt like they didn't, no one knew she was pregnant. It wasn't obvious. I see. Um, and so she had all this, this, this a story in her head mm-hmm. that this was an inappropriate thing to do. And it took the trust and transparency of us to ask a lot of questions that were not, um, overly invasive, but like really understanding, like, what are the criteria that matter to you? And mm-hmm. how do we make sure you're aligned? And finally she said, okay, here's the problem. Mm-hmm. She trusts us enough to say it. And we knew the client well enough to say, oh my gosh, she's going to throw you a, you know, baby shower. This is going to be great. This isn't going to be a, a cultural bomb. This is actually going to be a welcome hmm. thing that you are concerned about, but I can tell you it's not. So it requires us to ask different questions about the how and it requires a level of trust and transparency that, you know, is why it's more relationship-based recruiting than, like, transactional volume recruiting where you're just kind of putting bodies in a chair. Well, so you got, um, you got the trust of the, of the prospective hire. Mm-hmm. How, did, how, did, how did the other side of the equation fit? They, so because we had worked with them before, so it goes back to relationships, I knew what they stood for as a team. So the team that she was going to join, um, there were a number of parents, and I knew the empathy was high. And so it just goes back to really understanding. You mean the understanding of her position as someone who yep. was pregnant? Yep. So you got to have to hmm. understand their values. Like, it, you know, mm-hmm. it, it requires time to yeah. get to know the team. It's a lot of investment on your part and it your is. colleagues, right, to, to have those it relationships exactly. and to know yeah. how people are going to react to different kinds of people coming in? Yeah, so I would say speed is the enemy of really figuring this stuff out. And it's hard, especially mm. I live in the Bay Area, and Silicon Valley is notorious for wanting speed. Speed is all. And I, it is everything, until it's not. <laughs> Because you get the wrong person in the job mm-hmm. and it blows up and you start over again. So, so I my sort of mantra is you have to go slow to go fast, you know. And and getting mm-hmm. to know the values and getting to know that decision making means it will be a good fit. And she's now been there for over seven years. Oh wow! Yeah. So, so this is the way you operate in in creating those connections those that are more more likely to work because you've got a richer set of information about candidate and about uh you know the role um how how does all this figure into the way you see the future of work as it is now that's a great question so i wasn't really sure uh so i actually started doing research on the future of work, asking people who I thought were incredibly smart, including yourself, um, years and years ago, 
as my like, let's figure this out. Like what will mm-hmm. remain true and important in the future of work? Yes. Full and, disclosure, folks. Uh, <laughs> Sally and I have had these conversations for a long time, uh, yeah. but, but uh, not, not recently and, and not on no. the air recently. So no. uh, I'm, I'm really keen to find out like how you've evolved and, and again, how, how you're thinking now about the future of work and how what you do with Forche uh, is, is really a part of shaping that. Yeah, it's, um, so it's interesting. As much as we are so excited about, you know, the future of work kind of as a meta, um, what I found was talking to uh, a wide swath of people that we all are really kind of grappling with. It could go so many different ways. Um, and so what I landed on is my favorite question of all of my questions I would ask people is, what will remain true and important in the future of work that is also true and important today? So we can really have a North Star of what to focus on hmm. because there's a, it's kind of dizzying how much um, scenario planning you could like partake in mm-hmm. and, and, we're, and it can be exhausting, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of my favorite interviews besides you was Vivian Ming, um, who's a theoretical neuroscientist at Cal, and she's got a company on learning called Socos. And, you know, she and I just talked for, we, we scheduled an hour and I think we were like two and a half hours in when I was like, okay, wait, <laughs> this is, um, we could go on for days. And it was really about the fundamentals. It was about sort of what we just talked about, which is building relationships, um, having transparent systems where people can see why they should trust you um, and, and really always learning, explicit mm-hmm, learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part of it is, is thinking about work in more of a fluid way that you're not going to retire. So some of the age-old like frameworks that we have around work are really quite dated. Hmm. The idea that we're going to get out of work and retire one day and that that's the holy grail for autonomy isn't actually correlated with our happiness, right? So, so I really sort of opened the aperture around work to say, you know, how might we blend work, um, learning, and what I call oxygen mask first, which is time with family friends and family and mm-hmm. sleep and exercise and meditation into more of a blend. So I don't like to call it work-life balance. I always call it work-life blend. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we look at the neuroscience and the social science that tells us what will be will remain true for us and stay focused on that? If we do that, then we're adaptable for the future of work in whatever actually proves to be true. How has design thinking played into your understanding of uh, the future of work and how you're helping people to uh, adapt it and to create it. Um, I love that. So, so there's basically three beats to the Forche story, and and frankly, I think all of our stories to a certain extent. One was how do we think about interim work and project based work, and and it's it's sort of that you know um, free agent nation, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's side hustle. There's lots of different words for it and not Uber driving. I'm talking about professionals, right, who are using their MBAs for Morton. <laughs> um, I see. The second, <laughs> the second is working on teams that are diverse, right? So how do we think about that? Um, and then the third was this design thinking. The reason this came in was because I was working with big companies and startups, tech and non-tech, and all of them had some level of crazy and when I say crazy, I, um, I mean like the work culture was challenging and it felt out of control, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, so they would call me up and they would say, you know, even though I'm working at such and such really cool company, um, I want to leave because this is 
you know, this is too much. And when too immersive when of my whole life, uh, this, yeah, so that, that exactly. the oxygen always, flow isn't uh, isn't uh, rich there enough. Mm-hmm. There you go. And so, no matter where they were, you know, and you can look at my website and see the different you know brands that are there. No matter where they were, and they're really cool brands. They, you know, all of them kind of wanted out um, after being there for you know sometimes not very long. And so that was my heads up that even though I'm helping people get into work that I think aligns with their culture and their values, if the system of work is still too toxic, I'm not really solving the problem. So I wanted to to solve the underlying problem. And I had spent enough time at Stanford to learn about design thinking and think, okay, we use this when we talk about customer products and it's a really cool process. Why don't we use it to design better employee experiences, just like we design better customer experiences. And so I brought teams together from Airbnb, Genentech, Deloitte, Modzi, which is a startup, um, a bunch of different companies, big and small, tech and non-tech, because I didn't want anyone to have an excuse as to why this wouldn't work in their company. And they would, and we taught them, how do you do a design sprint? Um, and how do you not need a really large budget and you don't need the CEO's approval, per se, mm-hmm. um, to, to make work better. Because what generally what I found was true amongst everyone was everyone felt like it was out of their control. And mm-hmm. so what I wanted to do is teach them how to take things in their control by this lightweight process called design thinking. And it was kind of cool enough and new enough at the time, um, it's been around for a while, um, that everyone wanted to learn it. And that went back to what I was saying earlier, which is I think explicit learning is a critical part of evolving mm-hmm. for the future of work. Um, so it really married a lot of what I believe together. Um, and indeed, you know, Airbnb has done, done it now three years in a row. And and they are a company that's open, so I can talk about so it. So let me ask, g- give us an example of uh, the kind of yeah. change that we're talking about, perhaps at, at Airbnb. Exactly. They will let me talk about it. So the first one that they tackled was, how do we redesign performance evaluations so that both sides don't roll their eyes, right? Because it used to be these annual you know, performance reviews that were mm-hmm. uh, long, and they didn't feel relevant yes, and the, no those one enjoyed the ancient systems suck for all kinds of reasons. So what <laughs> exactly. what what did you help them to do? So we taught them how to do it for themselves by the way. I'm all about building the muscle of the team uh, mm-hmm. versus they rely on me. Mm-hmm. So we taught them how to do ethnography. How do you go to the managers and the employees and ask them like what's working, what's broken, watch them do it. Um, and basically, you know, take their perspective with empathy and ethnography. Um, then they developed a better system, which is constantly evolving. Um, but basically, it was instead of saying, like, we need to have the holy grail of the perfect system, it was how do you make iterative adjustments mm-hmm. that, that are continually reflecting what the managers and the employees want. Yeah, I and, call and those experiments. Exactly. That's exactly it. So design thinking is all about running small experiments. Mm -hmm. And so what it did was instead of making it this really big project that required a whole new system adopted by IT and approved by legal and trainings to the managers and trainings to the employees, which just sounds, you know, long, complicated and painful, they did small things with small teams and then it spread. Like like what? Like a good virus. Uh, Like how do you do, you know, a one page um, on a quarterly basis? Mm-hmm. Right. And how do you talk about careers separately? And then you talk about um, performance in the past. So how do they make it more modular? 
because if you try and conflate everything into one conversation, mm-hmm. you know, how did, how did you perform? What do you want in your future? And oh, by the way, here's your compensation update. It's too much. And it didn't feel um, like the employees basically felt like they weren't really being heard. Um, and so it was actually breaking it apart from a big system to more modular, so, lightweight system. So how does that and other kinds of changes that, that make work systems more flexible and adaptive, how does that affect the employee experience? Greatly. So, you know, one of the things they're, they're doing now with their most recent was they didn't do a pre and a post on this system to know, like, how, how was the lift in terms of, ma- they did see that the number of employee um, submissions and the number of manager submissions went up because, you know, you never get 100%. Um, so that was one sort of pre and post to know how, how they did. People are what participating. They're, right- they're using the process. Yeah, So there's exactly. utilization. <laughs> that was one indicator. But how did that change what it was like for a person to be working in that company at that time? Um, I, I have to say they didn't, they didn't ask that, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we're evolving and, and they're doing it now is mm-hmm. doing more pre and post data to get to that. I see. Because some, back to the going too fast, sometimes they're just like, let's just do it. But if without pre and post data, it's hard to know what was the lift, Right. And how did, what did we really learn from the experiment? So right. the most recent one I can share is they started to say, okay, one of the most painful processes is calibration. Calibration is, a, is for those of you who are not managers, <laughs> are when the managers get together and say, well, how are we going to know that the way that Stu's rating someone is the same way that Sally's going to rate someone yeah. and make, make sure that it's fair? Some people call that inter-rater reliability. So that you've got okay, multiple raters use, you know, using the same, the same method and metrics for assessing quality. Exactly. And, and so, you, you know, because otherwise you want to work for the manager who gives everybody an A <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and not the manager who's really hard. So um, the, the, what, what they did uh, most recently, and this, this one they do have a pre and a post that they're actually evaluating right now, is they said, we want to debug the bias that we all have because we're all human beings with um, fast thinking brains is how do we, you know, increase the likelihood that we're going to have better conversations about the Mm. merits of someone's pay promotion um, bonus amount um, in the conversation. Because in conversation is when a lot of bias can pop up. Um, The extroverts can win. Right, so um, the, the, so then making changes of that sort. If I can jump in here, I'm I'm yeah. I'm really interested in seeing how the systemic kinds of or changes in the work system, which was your your mm-hmm. purpose on the on the on the you know on the work side on the organization side, what you expect to see in terms of creating a, a more um, conducive environment for diverse and uh, you know. Um, Different, well, different kinds of people who have various kinds of needs that they bring uh, to their employment experiences. Yeah, so this was a fun one. This was a great experiment that they chose because it it combined multiple goals. Mm-hmm. One is every company wants their best and brightest to get um, promoted, right? Mm-hmm. You want people mm-hmm. who are ready to get promoted. You want it to be based on merit. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is, therefore, you get you know the people who are of an unrepresented group feel that they are being treated more fairly because there's a process that feels like it is addressing the fact that we have this fast thinking unconscious bias, right? So is there a greater um, a greater opportunity for voice by people exactly. who might otherwise be inhibited to speak? 
Exactly. So what they did was two things. One is they created a video because they're Airbnb and they're very cool. Um, And so they wanted it to be um, a video that would give you the knowledge about how, how do our brains work so that people didn't feel like this was someone was bad or good, but in fact, this is just how our brains work. So how do we, um, uh, you know, make better decisions because we understand how implicit bias works. So they did a little video that was just three minutes long Mm -hmm. and helped people understand how this shows up. Then during the actual calibration sessions, they created um, cards that would help someone understand um, instead of it being like HR's responsibility or the person who is in an, you know, a, um, a lower represented group, um, being responsible for saying like, hey, I think we're creating a double standard for Julie, mm-hmm. right? Which isn't fair. Um, everybody has a card that's these calibration cards that says like, uh, wait, I think we might have accidentally just, you know, fell victim to what we just learned about in that video. So they spread the responsibility across the entire management group um, versus mm-hmm. its reliance on HR or um, the woman in the room or whatever. Um, so that was how that was how they did it. And then they've had some sessions since, and now they're looking at the data to say, okay, do we think that actually helped? Um, and, you know, qualitatively speaking, when the mm-hmm. participants came back, they all said positive things, but they also want to see quantitatively that there's a lift and, and you know, a different kind of spread in the distribution of how um, the merit increases, bonuses were all awarded. Uh, we're talking about some of the some of the cool changes that you're helping companies to to bring to bear. Um, you know, this show is about work and life, and I want to turn our conversation to uh, to more of the life side of the equation and how. Uh, what you're doing with companies helps people in their lives. Can you talk mm-hmm. a bit about that? Sure. I can, and I always think you have to start with yourself and your team, right? So I can't help anyone else if I'm not uh, figuring it out in my own life and mm-hmm. for my own team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so when I started, um, I hired people who shared my values, which was I, you know, a fundamental belief that we will do our best work when we take care of ourselves and that these are not, this is not a zero sum game. So I look for people who are, you know, growth mindset oriented, abundance mindset. Um, and with that belief, we can make it happen. Right. Uh, versus fighting kind of an old battle that I don't want to fight anymore. <laughs> um, so, so for me, it was about flexibility, which I've moved on to call autonomy. Like I wanted to have more choice over when, where, and how I did my best work. And that allowed me to have a life. So I choose to work from home more than I choose to work um, on client sites, for example. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if my kid needs me um, last minute, um, I'm there. I can get more of the operational stuff done um, uh, when I have less time commuting. So for me, that was like a huge one to enable my life to feel less stressed. Mm and, and it's something that I've had, I've created for myself and then created for my team. And it's interesting, too, Stu, to see how people have to deprogram themselves from bad work environments. Because <laughs> I'll have people who come from sort of traditional, you know, great work environments. Yeah. Um, but they, they're, you know, explaining away why they can't be available, you know, Tuesday morning for like two hours or something. And I'll be like, remember, I don't, I don't care. I just, <laughs> I just care about 
the quality of the work, yep. uh, the timeliness, mm-hmm. and you know, if you if you have to take care of something and we're going to miss a deadline, letting me know ahead of time yep. so we can solve it. Mm-hmm. And so it's really that results oriented work mm-hmm. um, that is is crucial for me in terms of being able to therefore have a life. Um, and we've seen this in the research, right? So so I always think, well, am I an outlier? But we've seen that with Leslie Perlow's research around teams, um, that this is true for, for all of us. We just need to have team agreements about, you know, how do we get the work done in a way that we're also supporting our design constraints um, around time. And mm-hmm. that that actually can fuel our creativity instead of feeling constrained by it in a negative way. I really try to flip flip the myth that that's bad and actually say, actually, it can kind of be a, a catalyst for you know, something more interesting coming out. So what's been the toughest part of making that a reality in your life and your team? Oh, that's an interesting question. What's the toughest? Um, I think setting clear expectations. Mm-hmm. The, the biggest challenge in results-only work is you got to be really clear about what the outcome is yep. and, and not try to be overly clear about what every step is, right, which can feel like micromanagement. Yes. So really What's the having, distinction between mm-hmm. uh, clarifying and specifying ends versus means? Exactly. And, and we know there's a lot of research on this that you've you got to be as crystal clear as you can on the end. You know, what's the purpose? Yeah. What's the goal? What, how are we going to assess it? But as flexible as you can be with respect to means. So Exactly. So, so, so what's difficult about that? Because a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah, I mean, because it's always evolving. So, so we have mm. a scorecard that my team looks at, and we have a weekly and a monthly and a quarterly, because you can't look at everything weekly, monthly, and quarterly, <laughs> right? Some, um, and so and it's always evolving. If you looked at our scorecard seven years ago and our scorecard today, it's, you know, there are very few things that are the same. Um, so I think it's really having that adaptive mindset of, okay, that that was how we were measuring success and what our results were going to be before. But actually, I think it's evolved. Um, and being able to sort of regularly, so we do it quarterly, regularly look at it and say, what's still true? What, need, what needs to be new? And what do we need to let go mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in our goals? Um, so you're regularly and, focused on, on mm-hmm. revising goals. Yeah, and maybe it helps that we're a virtual team. So mm-hmm. when we get together, we don't have meeting fatigue because we barely have meetings. We have like calls twice a week that are very lightweight. So when we get together on our quarterly on in person, we call it offsite, but there's no onsite, <laughs> so that's okay. adorable. Um, <laughs> uh, we can go deep because we're not exhausted from seeing each other, um, and so we have fresh eyes and. Mm. Yeah, and we want to make our goals. We want to have profit sharing to distribute. So we're mm-hmm. on the same compensation plan. I would say that's another evolution that I've learned is is we need to be on the same compensation plan. So if I win, you win. Mm-hmm. Um, and and therefore, how we get to the solution isn't about who's taking credit. So um, freedom, flexibility, that. that's that's really what our whole movement's been about for decades. And yep. you're, you're finding ways to make it a reality in your work environment. What have you seen in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the family, community, and personal uh, life outcomes for the people in your work environment? And then I want to turn that to how you bring that experience and knowledge to the work you do with your, your clients. Yeah, I would say that the the most obvious one, and I've actually been um, the recipient of it last week, is whenever something goes wrong in our families. I mean, it's interesting how culturally we believe everyone is healthy all the time. 
<laughs> and like mm-hmm. when someone gets sick or um, you know needs extra help, that that like that's an interruption of life. <laughs> and so that so is we life. Design, <laughs> we, we call it designing for messy. You know, like uh-huh, we just expect good. like like crap's gonna happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say when stuff happens and it happened to me last week with my family, everyone's fine now, but, um, to be able to raise your hand and say like, um, so I'm tagging out, like I have to take care of this immediately, or I need to take care of this over the next three months or whatever Hmm. is true. And the stress of saying that and the stress of executing that is so far lower than a traditional work environment because we've set up the structure to have this kind of um, value system. Um, so mm-hmm. I'd say that's the most immediate impact on life is like the stress is not crazy. We don't say on our team, you can't have it all or you can't have it at the same time. We we actually really dislike a lot of the language that was um, sort of pervasive. I, I call it in the 1900s. <laughs> um, and we really adopt a different mindset of um, how do we support each other? How do we get it done? Um, and how do we get it done in a way that's that's just not painful, you know, where we're not um, feeling exhausted? Because then we know we're going to be solving problems in the wrong way, mm-hmm. um, you know. So so that's kind of the, the how it shows up for us in life is just our stress is lower. Stress is lower. And do you have any sense of how this affects people's lives beyond their relationship with each other in the work context? Um, their family lives, it, their their own health and yeah, spiritual so, growth. Uh, any ooh, any of those elements that? Know. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have the spiritual side. I will say we're huge on what we call multipliers. We learned this from Professor Ocker at Stanford. Multipliers are when you exercise and have great conversations and maybe go get your favorite coffee or tea at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and multiple. So we we have a norm that when we get together with a um, a person who we're recruiting is that we do a walk and talk. Mm-hmm. So, so we integrate good practice. Mm-hmm. So, so we continually take that data of like, Oh, that's a good thing. And then we in- incorporate it, right? Like walking and talking actually boosts creativity and you get your steps in, right. And you're outside in nature, mm-hmm. all these things that are proven in research to, to be positive. Yep. Um, so, so I would say our, our health and well being of our team is reported high, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and so that, that is definitely something I haven't heard much about the spirituality, but again, because they're not commuting as much too, because we're virtual, Uh um, I think everyone also feels like they're able to actually get more work done. Um, even, you know, because they're just not having to spend time driving. So those are some sort of like tactical, obvious positives around well-being because we know that like Mm -hmm. commuting is a... Super negative for people's well-being. So, so what advice would you have for people listening about how they can try to bring some of these practices, these workplace practices, into their work lives? Oh, I'm writing a book on that. Um, okay, I would say the two obvious ones are autonomy. So, having a little bit more control, we know, is directly correlated with how we're going to feel about the day. So. I don't call it flexibility anymore because there's a stigma around flexibility for some people, not evolved people, but for some people, flexibility still has a negative stigma. So I call it autonomy. It's still, so it's still can, uh, heard as zero sum. If you get yeah. flexibility, well, that means I get constraint. Exactly. And it mm-hmm. goes back to kind of what we the, the hour off, which is the ideal worker norm, which is you're only awesome if you're available and working all the time, mm-hmm. right? 
um, which is even though we've seen in the data that's not true, we still have this myth, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we ignore the word flexibility and we use the word autonomy. And I, my first recommendation for anyone is to negotiate for what you need. And if that is, you know, less commuting or if that is, um, you know, more time off or whatever it is that's your oxygen mask first, um, to just ask for it. And you can ask for it in a trial. The most successful um, people I've coached on this if they say, can I try this for a month, mm-hmm. it's much easier for the manager to say yes because they're not saying yes to something forever. Of course, right? yeah. That's what I've so, been uh, advising people to do in, in the total yes. leadership approach. It's the essence of it and it's the most powerful piece of it. To call these trials, I call them experiments, it really yeah. lowers the resistance and it helps everyone to say, well, we're just going to see how this works and if it doesn't, we can go back to the way things were or we can try something different. Exactly. So I, I like to try something different, but yes, that's exactly right. So the first is is taking care of yourself because mm-hmm. if you don't have oxygen mask first, it's really hard to be awesome. Then the second um, is how to have a conversation with whatever your team is. And it doesn't matter if you're in charge of the team, mm-hmm. if you're the most junior person on the team, if you're the remote person on the team. I would say, you know, ig- ignore that voice in your head that your voice doesn't matter. If you are on a team, you have a voice. <laughs> And to use that voice to ask questions about how might we, right, that's my favorite design thinking question, Mm -hmm. how might we support our best work and support our best lives, understanding design constraints. And so this is where they could pull Mm -hmm. um, on Leslie Perlow's research, which is actually if we support each other in how we both, you know, have constraints on our work, it will improve our lives. That might be no meeting Wednesday. That might mm-hmm, be no emails mm-hmm. after 6 p.m. That might be no weekend emails. It can be any experiment. And I did some of these experiments with Dr. Perlow. Um, and different teams have different norms. And so, you know, one might work for another and, and, and not work for a global team. Or, mm-hmm. There's lots of reasons. But if we don't include the team, it doesn't matter how evolved you are as a single individual. If you are part of a team that has really toxic behaviors, you know, we know we're the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So it's just going to be hard. So yeah, you know, and oxygen mask first and then, and then involve the team. Engage the team. And, and Leslie Perlow, who is a friend and colleague who is at Harvard Business School, has written uh, wonderfully on this, especially in uh, Sleeping With Your Smartphone, which, mm-hmm. uh, which lays out a lot of these ideas. Um, what role does technology play in all this? Uh, I mean, I know it plays a large role, and I'm interested in your take, Sally, on how how we can leverage technology to work better, smarter, giving us more freedom in all the different parts of our lives without having it completely consume us. Yeah, I, I um, we had a whole panel on this not too long ago, and some people just wanted to throw their phones. And I said, you know, um, any technology is neither, neither you know, evil nor a, a blessing. It's how you use it. So we're still the masters of our technology. And I think the most helpful way to think of it is how do you make sure that you're, the alerts that are coming to you are the alerts you want, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so filtering, you, filtering is key. Exactly. Um, we have way too many, too much data coming at us. Mm-hmm. So being able to have it filter so you're not using your prefrontal cortex and exhausting yourself, having to filter it yourself um, mm-hmm. is the first thing. And, and and I also really like to reverse the rules. So even though your alarm is usually, you know, to wake you up, like how might you actually use your alarm to, to tell you when to go to sleep? <laughs> sure. So, yeah. you know, when like, to stop things. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you could say, like, I'm going to set my alarm for 9 o'clock, and there's no more digital devices because I know that I need my melatonin to flow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so it's really embracing the neuroscience to say, how does the technology make me a superhuman versus the technology kind of disrupting my sleep Hmm. and, you know, stressing me out. So by by using mm -hmm. the tools of of alerts and and signals like that to help you to stop doing things, Mm -hmm. um, that's really helpful. What other ideas do you have about how to master the digital domain? Well, you know, I always go back to science because I don't want it to just be my my, my Mm -hmm. social science of one, um, which is we think best in 90-minute increments. And so so being able to say, like, all right, I'm going to focus on whatever I need to focus on for 90 minutes and either turn off all my alerts, right, Um, but really know that, like, it's just 90 minutes, so you don't feel like, you you know, you're starting to shake. (laughs) but you know, you mean shake that, from the detox problem yeah. of ha- of being without the signals that other people yes. are sending you. Yes. Okay, yeah. So, um, I, so ninety minutes. You, know, you can do that, people. You can stop for totally. ninety minutes, or if ninety right. seems too much, maybe start with thirty. Of right, bounded deep work, as Cal Newport calls it, uh, time where you're we are uninterrupted. So how how do you do that? How do you create those ninety minute chunks and actually use them? So the way I do it is I don't have any meetings in the morning. Um, so mm-hmm. we know that our best thinking is in the morning, and typically you don't need your best thinking for meetings. But, um, and so so that's really when you want to go deep. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I just don't have morning meetings. Um, mm-hmm. So you can block your calendar. If people share your, your calendar, which they do with mine, mm-hmm. you can block it, and you can call it whatever you want. Um, deep thinking time, creative time, whatever. Research um, is, so I, is what mm-hmm. one of my friends and colleagues used to do. And in, in the old days, when you had to put something there that looked worky uh, on right. your calendar, if other people were seeing it, you, she put research on her calendar. And that was the time for Love herself it. and her own work and just do, taking care of herself. Um, so that's, that's one method. But what if you're working with other people who require your engagement, your active engagement in the morning? Ugh. Yeah. So then I... Like most people. Mm Mm-hmm. So meditation, and it doesn't have to be spiritual. It can literally just be neuroscience, whatever you want it to be for you, Mm -hmm. um, can reboot the brain similar to when you're sleeping at night and you wake up refreshed in the morning. Mm -hmm. So one of my habits um, is to do, you know, 10 to 20 minutes of meditation, but it can be as little as five for those of you who that, like, makes you roll your eyes. Um, 10 to 20 minutes of meditation, and I feel like I um, have just woken up again. Like, mm-hmm. I just clear my brain. I do use an app for this, right? Back to where your phone can be mm-hmm. ridiculously helpful to actually be, you know, to, to make your brain better. Um, so I use an app because I n- need to help taming my monkey brain. Um, and then and then you get refreshed, and you can do your 90 minutes whenever you can do your 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Or, as you said, 30 minutes whenever you do 30 minutes. I think the key is, like, feeling more like you're in charge of your time, yes. right? Um, and just being more of an instigator and a creator versus feeling like you're amazingly receptive and you're so mm-hmm. helpful. You know, that's a great start to your career, um, but we have to kind of move more into the how are we, like, taking charge of our uh, of our work and our decisions and our and the way our brains work so we can well, have the impact we want to have. And setting boundaries, that's, that's all a part yeah. of growing up. 
Um, let's see. You're, you're doing some work. Can you give us the headline on how you're helping companies manage parental leaves or manage help people to do that? Mm, my favorite story here is the vice president of marketing at a company was going on maternity leave. She's French, and she said, I'm not taking your crazy small American leave. And so we worked with the team to figure out, all right, how do we get the work done with a parental leave that would support her? So we found out that her number two really wanted more uh, uh, access to the executive suite. And so we said, okay, you're going to backfill the VP, and we're going to backfill you with a part-time person who has a complementary skill set in marketing. So he was really good at marketing communications. Mm -hmm. He wasn't as strong in digital. So we were able to give a part-time marketing consultant that had complementary skills to him um, that allowed him to be successful in backfilling the VP. Hmm. So it's really it always comes it's a back win for everybody. It is a win for everybody. So when she came back, she said, oh, my gosh, my team has made so much progress. I didn't even feel like I should log in, even though I've kind of adopted your American thing of wanting to always check in. Um, he had a great experience stretching, but not feeling unsupported. Um, and the interim marketing consultant, you know, she's in a different stage of life where she wanted to travel more and she only wanted to work part time. So everybody had a win and it was economically rational, mm -hmm. right? Because you've got everybody but you had delivering. To, this didn't happen yeah. by magic, though, right? You had I to know. think about all the different <laughs> elements. I mean, I'm just pointing that out as, as something Thank that's you. that's probably obvious. But, you know, these things have to be considered. But it sounds like what you did there was to really take into account what people needed and how they could grow and contribute better and, and to make it work, as you said, for the team. Let me ask you uh, about how men are changing. What are you seeing? I know that's a four-hour oh, conversation, but just really quickly. <laughs> we can kick off our next conversation. Okay. So, so, what, what, what's, what's the big idea? Yeah. The big idea is millennial men I have seen in the Bay Area, I realize it's not everywhere, um, want to be the new kind of superhero which is not the ideal worker who works all the time and has a spouse who takes care of everything else. Like that is a 1970s or 50s model that we can let go. They want to be athletes. They want to be awesome at work. They want to be a fantastic spouse. They want to be an involved parent. Um, they actually want to sleep and not feel like a piece of junk in the morning. Um, they want to meditate more than drink. Like it's crazy evolved. And I think with these millennial men who want a different version mm -hmm. of what masculinity mm -hmm. looks like, mm -hmm. it actually allows more women to be their partners in not only parenting, but it partners in running the boardroom. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That's uh, such a great way to capture uh, the, the tone of the moment. All right. How do you bring compassion to your working life, Sally? Um, I know that mistakes are part of life, and I just say I'm so sorry, and I own it. Awesome. Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much, Sally Thornton. It's been really a delight speaking with you. How can people find out more about the wonderful work you're doing at Forche? Um, www.forshay.com and connect with me on LinkedIn. I love to be connected with people there, too. So how would they do that? Sally Thornton. <laughs> T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N. All right, Sally, really appreciate your joining us tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Forche founder and CEO Sally Thornton and that it provoked some new thinking. So now let me challenge you to invite you to try out one of Sally's ideas in 
your life. How about using your smartphone's alarm function to remind you to go to sleep or take a break, to stop doing something? Not how you usually use it, right? You might use the alarm to to remind you or to compel you to block chunks of time for uninterrupted, dedicated effort to something, something important. And while you're at it, why not talk to some of your colleagues about how you can support each other as you try to move toward the common interest you probably all have in creating undistracted time for the things that really matter to you. Let me know if you try any of these ideas in your real world and what you discover. I'd love to hear from you. So get in touch with me directly. It's friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, where you can find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.